Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus podcast from Bloomberg Intelligence. My name is Ira Jersey. I'm the chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Today, we're going to be talking about the mortgage market with Erica Edelberg. She is our mortgage strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joined us in 2021 and has joined us exactly at a time when the mortgage market has gotten quite a lot of focus, given what's been going on with the Federal Reserve policy, as well as obviously the uh, housing market uh, being so hot of, uh, of late. With that, Erica, thanks very much for coming on the FIC Focus podcast. Hi, Ira. Thank you for inviting me to join. So let's talk just a little bit about some of the market structure pieces for those who aren't familiar uh, with the mortgage-backed securities market. So Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and and Ginny Mae, uh, government uh, quasi-agencies or actual agencies of the government, they issue um, they issue mortgage-backed securities that are made up of individual mortgages that are underwritten by a variety of um, of other financial institutions um, and also guaranteed in some cases, uh, but by them as well. To talk talk a little bit about how the markets changed over the last couple of years. And um, and then we can get more into your your views and insights as to what's going on in the market now. Well, the interesting thing about the mortgage market right now is that with rates having fallen to historic lows over the past couple of years, the mortgage market has dramatically changed into a refinance sector where almost all the loans outstanding now were either originated or refinanced in the past couple of years. And most of those were originated or refinanced with rates that were to the homeowner in the, you know, two and a half to three range, which to the coupon holder, once you take out the insurance fee and some servicing costs, is a two to two and a half percent coupon. So almost all of the mortgage market right now is very, very low coupon structures as rates have risen super fast so far this year. The issuance is now moving up into more like a four to four and a half percent coupon for the investor, about a four and a half to five percent rate for the homeowner. Um, meanwhile, as I said, most of the mortgages, mortgage backed securities outstanding are these low coupon mortgages. So that's one of the big differences. The other big difference is as we have gone from refinancing to now what's becoming increasingly a purchase only origination environment, the type of mortgages and the characteristics of those mortgage-backed securities is actually changing pretty dramatically. There's going to be a rise in first-time home buyers, definitely a rise in higher coupon mortgages, and a rise in other interesting characteristics that are actually pandemic-related, like more automation and technology that's being incre- increasingly incorporated into the originations. So, um, so, so I have a question. Changes. So, a question with that, you know, we used to back in in the olden days when when I was uh, um, when I first got into the the rates business, and even when I was in the corporate business, we always talked about you know sixty and ninety day locks, right? So, people who would rate lock for sixty or ninety days, and then there were servicers and and others who would hedge that um, that that risk in the short term using um, using options on interest rate swaps. 
Um, has that technology piece changed any of that? Is is have closing times gotten much shorter, or was that more of a function of the fact that we were had refinancings instead of instead of uh, purchase originations that were going on? No, in fact, there is a very big push uh, using this technology. One of the motivations for it is to reduce both cost and closing times. And one of the reasons for that is because in the super highly competitive housing market with inventories also at all-time lows, um, the GSEs and the government wants to actually be able to extend lending to a wider variety of homeowners and they're trying to compete against all cash buyers in this market, which are actually, you know, upwards of 25 to 30% right now of new purchases in some areas. So, you know, to, to increase the competitiveness of people who actually have to take out loans to be able to buy homes, especially first time home buyers, they are using technology to try to reduce closing costs as one of the sorry, closing times as one of the frictions that actually does make um, people who have to take out mortgages less competitive versus cash buyers in this market. So so the, the other thing that I think a lot of people don't quite realize is that most of the mortgage market doesn't trade in uh, the actual securities, the mortgage-backed securities uh, market that are pass-throughs and and that are made up of the the Bloomberg index indexes, for example, have um, have actual securities in them. But most of the volume is actually in to-be-announced securities, the T, so-called TBAs, and those are more uh, forward-settled kind of uh, kind of structures. So, so does does this technology issue change? Or has it changed the way that uh, that mortgages are traded? So instead of people trading, you know, next month or two months out, do they? Do, is there more trading in the current month's kind of origination in, in terms of uh, of the TBA market? Um, actually, I don't really think so. Yeah, the TBA structure is one of the interesting aspects of mortgage-backed securities for um, investors who are more familiar with different types of uh, investments. One of the reasons that that became the way that mortgage-backed securities traded is because as originators do create loans, um, they want to effectively hedge their new origination by selling it into the market, but they don't necessarily know. They know that loans are being locked. They don't necessarily know exactly what the characteristics of those loans will be. So they sell them in kind of a generalized generic coupon to increase liquidity in a forward month, one or two months out, whenever they you know, think they will be actually getting that new origination. And so as a result, the whole mortgage market, the secondary market has also adapted to that type of trading. And in fact, 90% of the market trades at least in TBA form and generally trades one, two, three months out on specific settlement dates for specific types of, care, of, of securities. For instance, FHFA loans trade using one settlement date of a month. Government loans generally trade using a different settlement day of the month. So uh, 15 years actually trade on their own settlement date, their agreed settlement dates per month. So yeah, that, that hasn't changed, nor do I really anticipate it changing. It's just one of the ways to ensure liquidity in the secondary markets and continues to be a significant percentage of how the market trades. And for rates people, those settlement dates matter quite a lot because 
there's a lot of times when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have excess cash that they wind up putting to work in the repo market. And so it has, there's some kind of monthly, I don't want to call them seasonals exactly, but there's certainly a monthly cadence of when uh, mortgage payments come in uh, and, and GSEs are flush with cash versus when they have to pay out their uh, their pass-through security coupons. Um, so, so there are dynamics in the mortgage market that seriously affect what goes on in the in the rates market as well. So th- those can't be completely overlooked. But I think that's for another day because I think it's important now, Erica, for us to pivot a little bit and talk about mortgage spreads and um, and and how they've reacted. So as we went into the first interest rate hike back in in uh, uh, earlier this year in March, and then now with the announcement of um, of quantitative tightening beginning in June, um, you know, we, we did see significant widening in the mortgage basis. So the spread between um, interest rate swaps and, and treasuries and, and the mortgage-backed securities and TBAs widened quite a lot. What's been gone, gone on more recently, particularly since the, uh, the May meeting when QT was announced, as well as, you know, what, what's your view for the next couple of months as we uh, actually start to see the runoff of the Fed's balance sheet and uh, more supply into the market? Well, what's interesting is actually spreads have kind of continued to widen, generically speaking, especially current coupon spreads, I guess, uh, closed last night at 129 basis points or something, which is the widest in almost two years. And the reason that spreads have been widening on both the mortgage index as well as the current coupon mortgages, which are what's being currently produced, is because of anticipated supply that will be coming to the market that won't be absorbed by the Federal Reserve now that they've started um, running off their balance sheet. Uh, they actually, it's the start of the runoff will will begin in June uh, but at the same time, they have announced it. So the market's already anticipating that. There has been some uh, some rebirth, if you will, of uh, you know so, some uh, re- retrenchment of performance in working back securities so far this month. I think it's been reassured to some degree by the Fed actually announcing its runoff plans, which at the moment are probably a little bit more benign than worst case scenario mortgage investors had assumed I, there, there's some concern that the Fed will also sell mortgage-backed securities actively to reduce their balance sheet mortgage-backed securities if they want to pivot towards a more treasury-only portfolio. But none of that was really announced in the May meeting. Um, it's still probably on the table somewhere in the long run, but it's really a long run um, plan, not, not an immediate plan. So mortgages have actually are, are currently having their first positive month since last year on both an excess return and a a total return basis. The other thing that is contributing to that return is that there's much more of a spread buffer because yields are higher and spreads are wider. So even when spreads marginally widen, it doesn't cause as much of an underperformance as it did at the beginning of this year when yields were so tight and spreads were so low. I'm sorry, so, spreads are so tight and yields are so low. <laughs> yeah, yields are so low. So, so what does this mean for, um, you know, we, we, we keep on talking and there's still a lot of chatter about those sales of mortgages. And and my view is is that the, it's unlikely that the Federal Reserve is going to sell 
um, at least for the uh, at least for the first couple of quarters, because if they start in June, they're not going to have a good idea about exactly what the runoff pace of mortgages is probably until November, December. So it's not likely, in my view, that they're going to start to sell in January. But obviously, the market might start anticipating and, and kind of fearing again uh, that the Federal Reserve would sell up to that $35 billion. Now, I also don't think that they'll sell up to the $35 billion. I think it's much more likely that they say, you know, we're going to top off up to a number like 20 billion or 25 billion as opposed to the full 35 but but I could be wrong about that obviously so so is there you know what what are the dynamics like like how do you think the fed reserve will run those um th- those auctions to try to sell their securities because it's not something that they've they've done in the past so presumably it's going to have to go through the dealer community and and you know dealers don't have the balance sheet that they use due to hold security. So is, is there a significant risk that that if if it becomes a real possibility that the Fed's going to be selling 10, 15, 20 billion dollars of, of mortgages every month, that that spreads can blow out a lot more and make uh, consumer mortgage rates a lot higher? Well, what, what's interesting is that what the Fed holds is very different from what's being currently originated in the market. And what the Fed holds is very, very, at this point, because uh, rates have risen and prices have fallen on fixed income securities, they hold a lot of securities that are below $90 price. I mean, th- their biggest holding is in 30-year 2% mortgages, which currently are trading at around an eight, low 88 handle. So there, there's two problems with that. First of all, there is the, you know, at least the optics of, the Fed having to take losses on what they sell. I, I don't think that's ultimately really an issue for the Fed because they do remit a certain number of uh, amount, volume of remittances to the treasuries through the coupon income that they're generating, et cetera, through their portfolio. But it could require some incremental clarity and explanation to Congress and the general public if and when they actually take losses on these sales. So I think that, you know, that that's going to be an interesting um barrier to entry, if you will, for selling. But the other um, issue is that, again, if you go to sell an $88 price security, when probably the, the bulk of the investor base is buying new issue, are you going to find the buyers uh, to provide you liquidity for that very, very low dollar price, very long duration security? And, you know, li- listening as I have been to Fed Fed talking about what their thoughts are versus selling, uh, which they haven't really mentioned specifically in the meetings, but in their conversations and press conferences around that time, they are still looking at what the implications would be and who their target buyer would be for that. And they won't sell until they're pretty convinced that they will have the ultimately and and buyer liquidity for that type of paper. I, I think they... You know, it's kind of a north star for them, as they've said, to move to a treasury only portfolio. But I don't think I don't get the sense there's any sense of urgency for it unless the markets they perceive are really functioning well and I have a lot of liquidity. Yeah, I, su- I suspect a couple of things. So but one one thing that we have to remember is that the, there is a mechanism in place right now on the Fed's balance sheet and the way that they would deal with any potential uh, losses from the sale of, of uh, mortgage-backed securities would be that they would have a negative asset on their balance sheet that over time they would run off through their net interest margin. The, the, the primary 
um, issue that, that that creates is that there could be a long period of time when the Federal Reserve doesn't remit any profits to the Treasury Department. So at, at an, on an incremental basis, that would actually increase the budget deficit for um, for, for for a little bit, although it's, it's still very small. I've been asked about this a lot of times, like, you know, if there's smaller remittances because interest paid on reserves is much higher and m- very close actually to the to the average coupon of what the of what the Fed holds, does that mean that the budget deficit is going to balloon? And it, yes, it does increase the budget deficit. There's no doubt about that. But it's also a relatively small part of the total revenue of the uh, of the federal federal budget. So, um, but but it it does mean another ten billion dollars or so to the deficit every month uh, if uh, if the Federal Reserve would not to remit anything to um, to the Treasury Department. So, so with that, Erica, you know, the, the last thing that I have to ask you about is kind of the primary secondary spread. So and what makes that up? So we have the mortgage-backed security market through TBAs, as you mentioned, and those yields are, are much higher. But then there's also the spread between that and the consumer mortgage. And then there's different pieces of that. So so how much Fannie and Freddie charge the uh, the consumer for the for conventional loans. And then on top of that, there's then another servicer fee and other things. So, so talk to us about how that spread has developed over over, over the last couple of quarters and and how you see that developing so so for a, a lot of our listeners they own they have mortgages or they're thinking about refinancing or thinking about purchasing a house what does that primary secondary spread um, uh, d- development mean for the overall mortgage rate um, well it's interesting the primary secondary spread actually blew out to extremely high levels during the refinancing wave as the mortgage banking industry adapted to the huge volume of refinancings that were coming through at that point in an environment where hedging costs were high, um, finding new employees with, um, you know, pandemic and work from home, et cetera, uh, diminishing the availability of qualified workers, uh, employees, that it really blew out to 200 basis points. And actually the, the, banking industry is getting questions about that now, whether or not they were taking advantage of the opportunity uh, to to generate incremental income. And in fact, it it did turn out to be a pretty profitable time for the mortgage banking industry, but at the same time, as I said, hedging costs and employment costs and other types of logistical costs were were pretty high at that point. It's now come down uh, to around 130 basis points, bounced off its lows this year, earlier this year at around 120 basis points. But um, it's come up a little bit, but actually the, the marginal, um, I read something recently that the marginal profit on loans with loan volume falling so much and mortgage, mortgage employment rates still pretty much at pandemic high levels um, is something like five basis points per loan. It's, it's extremely tight. Uh, so it's going to be a very challenging time for the whole mortgage banking industry. And I don't really see them being able to reduce servicing costs below the currently, you know, below the current 120 to 130 basis point level. But, you know, historically, I think the lowest it's really gotten in recent years has been around 100 basis points. So I don't think that's going to have a significant impact on the ability to offer decent, you know, decent loan rates to homeowners. If anything, I think costs will be cut in other places like improved technology. Um, in order to offer the most attractive loans possible to consumers as they struggle with higher rates. 
Great. Well, that was Erica Edelberg. She is our mortgage strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Now we're going to turn over to our FunFed Fact segment with Angelo Monolatos. Angelo, what FunFed Fact do you have for us today? Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so something we've looked at in the past that I've uh, updated now, uh, I'm going to share with you guys is the length of the Federal Open Market Committee statements at their uh, eight pre-announced meetings. Um, so in 2021, uh, the average statement length in the eight meetings was 463 words, and it actually peaked uh, at 571 words in uh, in November. Um, that was when uh, that was during taper uh, or the announcement of taper. However, uh, something we've noticed and something that's kind of playing out right now is when the Fed is actually uh, reducing the size of their balance sheet, getting rid of you know crisis level accommodation. Uh, the statement gets shorter, and that's just something we're seeing in 2022. So like I said, the average statement length was over 460 words in 2021, and the statement length has fallen to just 321 words in uh, the May 2022 uh, statement that we got uh, just a couple weeks ago, which we are wait awaiting the uh, minutes of um, over the next week or so. So, you know, it's interesting that uh, those changes in the mortgage statement, because, you know, we obviously get the statement itself when we look at the um, at the Fed statement after the meeting. But then there's also, you know, ancillary uh, uh, re not reports, but but basically you, you get statements from the New York Fed as to how they're going to conduct their operations. So I'm wondering, you know, how much of, of that, like if we were to add that together, you would wind up having these ballooning statements that at some meetings like we did after the, the quantitative tightening uh, meeting this time and even in the uh, when, when they uh, issued the principles of runoff back in January, um, you know, you, you have basically a supplement to to the statement that just not in the uh, in the statement itself, which which I think is interesting as well. I mean, it's, it's I guess it's not as relevant for those people who aren't involved in the markets that uh, th that those supplementary materials talk about. But I think it's uh, still a very important aspect. Um, anything else from uh, from you today, Angelo? Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's good. And I think uh, something else we can definitely see is uh, it's just maybe more words aren't necessary. Uh, and due to the fact that uh, uh, chairman Powell, who's the current chairman, uh, has a press conference at every meeting now versus uh, not having that uh, for the entirety of the previous cycle. So if they need to explain something, he can always explain it in his opening remarks uh, versus having to put it in a statement and having to really uh, uh, look specifically at what he's saying and what they're saying in the statement because the statement is uh, combed pretty, clo uh, pretty closely. That's an excellent point. And with that, we're going to close our show today. Thank you for listening to this Macro Matters edition of the Thick Focus podcast. If you have any ideas for topics that you'd like us to discuss, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. On behalf of Angelo Monolatos, Erica Edelberg, and myself, Ira Jersey, we appreciate you listening. Until next time, be well.